Welcome back to The Opposition with Dan Knight. This is part two of our series on the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy protest and the implication of the POEC report. In this episode, we will continue our conversation with former Minister of Agriculture Jerry Ritz, convoy lawyer Keith Wilson, and Ava Chipiak, and investigative reporter Andy Lee. We will delve deeper into the legal and political fallout of the convoy, as well as examine the larger questions surrounding Canadian democracy. You can find this episode and more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave a review, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Thanks for joining us. One thing that really, one of the holes that really bugged me about this report, especially in the summary report, is it doesn't actually talk about the intent of the federal government. Um, you know, there was evidence pre- presented by Marco Mendocino's office where staffers write and they want to label this protest akin to January 6th. And they go on to say that they don't want to come down too hard because they don't want to push down the crazies. And, you know, prior to Christmas break, Blacklock's reports that Marco Mendocino may have perjured himself as internal memos released prior to the Christmas break contradict Marco Mendocino's testimony. As per Blacklock's internal memos acknowledged the Freedom Convoy was not a national security threat. My question to you, Keith, is it almost seems like this, this report ignores that evidence. It doesn't speak to the good faith of the federal government. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, and we saw, I, I, I'm with you now, thank you. And we, we were following, we subscribed to Black Locks and we were been, been uh, you know, it was part of our morning routine when we get ready for the inquiry each day was to see if what gems they might've found on any given day. Cause they were finding often uh, two, you know, they'd have at least two stories a day that were relevant. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we found when we were going through the tens of thousands of pages of records to the extent they weren't redacted and to the extent they were disclosed in time for us to review it, because that was another problem. We were getting uh, document dumps, uh, you know, constantly throughout the inquiry when those federal documents were supposed to have been disclosed back in July. But uh, was the early planning and the narrative creation that they identified Mendocino's office and some other uh, ministers' offices, political staffers, the whole narrative of, of characterizing everybody as extremists, as white supremacists, uh, you know, Nazis, and remarkably, uh, and that was even before the convoy arrived, Brendan Miller cross-examined a number of the government witnesses on those handwritten notes where it was clear that they were trying to uh, to affirm a narrative, stick with the narrative, and push that narrative out to the legacy media. And very early on, the legacy media grabbed onto that narrative and ran with it. So, uh, no, there wasn't good faith. Uh, they were clearly trying to malign uh, rather than work with uh, Canadians who were deeply concerned, rather than have a respectful Canadian dialogue and see where we could find common ground. They had no interest in that. It was vilify, uh, and, and whether that direction was set by the Prime Minister through his cabinet, I don't know, or w- whether it was right, widely held by the cabinet as well, but clearly their mission was to vilify uh, the protesters, paint them in the most negative light possible, You know, contrary to what they do with other protesters who are uh, advocating more left-wing causes. So that was the reality we faced. You know, it's funny that you say that because the POEC goes over dis- disinformation. He says that's one of the purposes of this report. Let's go over the disinformation. 
I find it I find an interesting quote by Jordan Peterson today, and he says, do not trust anyone who uses the words disinformation or misinformation. What they mean is opinions that run contrary to mine and I should not or I should be allowed to suppress. Um, you know, I read I read this report and I, I see that he kind of there's a bit of a character assassination on the organizers themselves. You know, he embellishes a little bit of what what the protester or the citizens of Ottawa's were going through and he doesn't touch upon the what good the protesters were um, doing you mentioned before you know they were mopping the floors of restaurants they were um, cleaning the the roads they were patrolling the streets but instead Justice Rouleau kind of goes in about Antifa and he kind of talks about how they were um, in the protest and that there could have been a there could have been a hostility between the two um, opposing factions i want to know what your take on the disinformation portion of the poec well i mean we always welcomed leading up to the inquiry and during the inquiry because we felt that an in-depth investigation into the extensive misinformation and disinformation by the federal government and others, including the provincial governments and the public health agencies and the the medical establishment, was incredibly important. They seemed to be blind to this notion that they were guilty of misinformation and disinformation. They seemed to think that by just using those phrases, it could only be the protest side that was engaging in it. And of course, I don't believe that that's what my clients were doing. Um, But I definitely believe that's why we... It was a little bit of a, a gimmick tactic we did where we uh, issued a, a formal motion for subpoena to subpoena the head of the CBC to speak to misinformation. You know, of course, they didn't grant our motion like most of our motions they didn't grant. But, you know, they were uh, either they thought they could fool all of us that they that the protesters had the monopoly on misinformation or they're so um, ideologically committed to their perspectives, they couldn't conceive that maybe they were ga- engaged in misinformation. I don't know which one it is. Yeah, because they, I mean, you read this report and it seems like Justice Rouleau and his team are vaccine positive. Um, because if you read the summary, they're, they're painting the complaints from the protesters and the organizers that the their beliefs are misinformation. And that's how I interpreted it. You know, he talks about the conspiracies of some of the organizers. I didn't find that at all objective. I found that, you know, these people have beliefs and you look at what was happening prior to the convoy. We had inconsistent messages from the federal and provincial government in BC. We had gyms closed, but malls open. We could, have masks off while we're sitting down at restaurants, but we had to put the mask on when we went to the washroom. A lot of the messaging was inconsistent. And one thing that really bothered me about this report is it doesn't talk about how the, the science evolved and how the provincial and federal government did not want to evolve with that information. Um, what are your guys' thoughts? Dan, it was worse. It was um, worse than that for Ev and I, because remember this, um, you know, I have, a busy litigation practice, practicing law for 28 years, my own firm, and Eva, who I'd worked on some cases with and cross paths with starting 15 years ago, contacts me in the fall of 2021 and says, Keith, you know, you really got to help out here on this 
COVID madness. Uh, Eva was with the Justice Center at the time and said, would you be willing to take on a Justice Center case, you know, even though they pay very, very little. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I, I got to get out there. My wife pushed me to get out there too. So I agreed to do Peckford and, uh, which is the travel mandate challenge suing Trudeau on behalf of Peckford and others for 6 million Canadians that lost their mobility rights. Well, that's how Eva and I sort of met recently in our past. And it was in February 1st that we got the phone call that the truckers needed help and whether we'd go to Ottawa, work for them too. And the answer was yes. But what happened after we got back from Ottawa, uh, Eva and I were with uh, the other lawyers on our team on Peckford. We started six weeks of daily cross-examinations of 16 senior government officials and experts, the same officials that the prime minister kept saying, and Dr. Tam and Mendocino and the health minister were saying, our experts are following the latest science. They are telling us that we need to keep these travel mandates in place. They are telling us that we need to keep the requirement for masking. They are telling us that the vaccine is the greatest thing ever. There's no adverse effects. Well, for six weeks, starting mid-May, Eva and I are doing cross-examinations daily on these government officials. And each one of their affidavits was usually a three to four inch binder, some of them two binders of scientific reports, of internal government documents. And we had to pour over all of these. And none of the officials were saying what the prime minister said they were saying. None of them were saying that the science said what the prime minister was saying it said. We would ask them because we'd see a press conference, say, on a Monday, and then on the Tuesday, we're cross-examining Dr. Waddell, the chief epidemiologist for the Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, Dr. Waddell, yesterday, the prime minister said that his health officials are continuing to recommend that all air travelers be vaccinated. Are you one of the officials that advises the prime minister? Yes, I am. Did you provide that, that advice to the prime minister? No, I did not, right? So... It's all bullshit. They, the, the science, you know, there's little bits of it that they could cobble together to support their position. But even their own officials that they were claiming were advancing these positions when they were under oath and cross-examined contradicted that. And even in the prime minister's press conference on Friday, he, you know, again, after he kind of apologized, he went on to then double down and say, but these protester types don't want to follow the science no sir your own experts were not saying what you were saying under oath those transcripts are available and by the way how many legacy media outlets did one single news story about the last living signature to our charter of rights and freedoms the honorable brian peckford suing Trudeau on behalf of 6 million Canadians and all of this evidence coming out under oath. How many news stories was there in the legacy media? I can tell you exactly. Zero. Not one. BBC covered it. Uh, Fox News covered it. The New York Post covered it, but not a single Canadian news outlet. So there you go. There's the misinformation. I, I know that's a lot, Dan, but I just want you to understand that the uh, the travesty here of the rhetoric and the misinformation from the federal government, even their officials that they claim were saying these things didn't say them. It's under oath. If anybody wants to do a deep dive, 
the 35,000 page compendium of evidence that we filed in that case is available in PDF searchable form on the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms website if anybody wants to do a deep dive and fact check anything I just said. Yeah, I just wanted to touch base or talk about the word organizers because I heard you mention that, Dan, a couple times and it's in the POEC report a lot. And if, again, you look at the facts, not people's feelings and, and what they decide later is, I think... You know, Chris Barbaret and Bridget and some people are credited with starting the campaign. And we're talking about TikToks in January. As we know, the Freedom Convoy started moving across the country late January. Some of us can't even organize a birthday party in, in three weeks. And here there's suggestions that this is a massive or and there's organizers and it's you know I I have always had a very hard time with the word organizers because I was on the ground and there was next to nothing organized it was dealing with the situation managing and this goes back to what I was saying at the start is because of incompetence on levels of government and police officials that citizens Canadian citizens that came to protest had to figure out the logistics because the government failed them in doing so, so that they could um, peacefully protest. So that's the issue I always have with organizers, the word. And then may I remind you too that when I cross-examined the Prime Minister, I asked him and I said, why didn't you talk to the protesters? You had an opportunity, you didn't take it. His answer was, well, we didn't know who the organizers were. So there's another inconsistency we can chalk up. Uh, Andy Lee, I think you're taking tally of the inconsistencies. So do we have organizers or do we not? Because we can't have it both ways all the time. That one is that one always bothers me and it will continue to bother me because anyone in Ottawa knows it was there was everything short of organization but people were on a mission people were there for a purpose people were tired of government overreach and um, the government just taking and taking away the rights of Canadians and the divisiveness and the hate and they came there to take a stand and to be heard and so that if there was organizing anything it was organizing hope for Canada just going through the reports inconsistencies like it 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 says here that the government of canada was sending notices to foreign missions so we have um foreign uh, diplomatic properties um in the you know the the ottawa area there's i don't i don't know how many it says there's 50 here sorry so um it says that they sent notices to these missions on january 28th um, that, you know, they might have to close and they should be prepared for protests. But then, you know, again, the, you know, the government of Canada is also saying that they didn't have any idea of the scale of the protests until, you know, the 30th when, when they were briefed. 
um, and when convoy organizers put out their first press conference. So, you know, it's, it's just one example, and this is nitpicky stuff. But again, there's every indication here that the government was well aware that there was going to be a, you know, a mass protest. There was going to be a degree of, um, you know, organized uh, civil disobedience, which is our right as Canadians. You know, we, we have the right to, um, to, to protest and to demonstrate and things like that. That's, you know, an important part of our democracy. But I mean, you know, so when they're saying that, you know, they didn't know that the protest was coming and that they didn't know that it was not going to leave, there's every indication um, that they knew very early on. Um, and so, you know, this is why I, I have problems with um, using this, um, this act um, because, you know, the, the story is going, what's being put out is that, um, you know, it was an act of desperation by the federal government. Well, I'm sorry, there's every indication that the federal government was well aware that there was, um, you know, there was going to be a mass protest. And, you know, this should have never been used, um, you know, as a replacement for government incompetence and policing incompetence. You have unemployed truckers who've been critical to the logistics of the country during this pandemic, who have been ordered to take a vaccine or risk losing their job. Why would anyone assume they would leave? Well, I mean, I, like I said, it, yeah. I think in my first, you know, uh, interview that I gave with Western Standard, I said that they have no intention of leaving. Like the, that was always very clear, right? I mean, the, there was it wasn't a surprise attack by any means. Like it's not like we snuck up on them. And they were forced to, you know, enact this, you know, this this war measures act against protesters because they had no choice. Yeah. Like, where were they going to go? I mean, they don't have a job. Um, their livelihood is threatened. Like, where were they going to go? Like, I, I just don't understand the rationale of what why they thought that they were going to leave and why they, they were going to think over the weekend. There's no indication of this protest. Either they're just the intelligent. There's no critical thought is what I kind of see when they look at this protest. I think they got complacent for, um, they compared this protest to all other protests and they're like, they're going to come in, they're going to roll through Ottawa and they'll be gone tomorrow, tomorrow. But I, that's where I think that the complacency came in and the incompetence came in. Um, you know, the POEC report, and he kind of goes over and says the trucker convoy was hostile to the citizens of Ottawa. I mean, did you see any violence on the ground there? Yeah, sorry, I just I just got my kids, so you're gonna hear little voices here. But yeah, I mean that's that's not something that I personally witnessed. Um, I wasn't there for the entire time, but but um, you know that that's not something that I saw. I did call out. Um, you know, Horizon Ottawa was uh, the group that was um, you know, for the most part organizing anti-protests and things like that. I did call them out today when they said that um, you know, protesters were. Um, you know, putting out anti-Semitic smears and things like that. I was like, well, there was hundreds of people there. Is there any proof of this? Um, or is this just you, you know, um, saying that something that, that fits in with, you know, your preconceived notion of, of what these people are and things that they would say. And I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's very little evidence of any violence. And, and CSIS said that themselves, February 8th. Um, so I think that was, again, something that they used um, when the directive CSIS says on February 8th that there's no indication of violence, but they are concerned about border crossings. I mean, I think that was really the crux of, of why um, the government sort of, you know, took this action. 
talking about the the emergency act um they went full tilt you know i'm reading the poec report and they say well we froze bank accounts and justice rouleau kind of touches upon that he says we froze bank accounts but i don't know if we needed to because all of the accounts that were um all of the money that was going to the convoy or to the organ or the protesters they were already frozen um you know i think tamara lich's uh GoFundMe that was put into a trust. Um, there was already mechanisms put in place. So they didn't see the need for, to freeze the bank account. And he kind of touches upon that. So the, the GoFundMe raised $10 million. Um, We had a conference call with the GoFundMe executives on Thursday, the 3rd of February. Um, on the plane ride into Ottawa with the legal team just assembled and the accountant, we prepared a comprehensive written response uh, to each of the questions that GoFundMe had raised, setting out how the finance committee worked, the recent incorporation of the not-for-profit corporation, which we refer to for ease of reference as Freedom Corp, and all the checks and balances that have been put in place to ensure the proper handling of the monies, the proper accounting of the monies, and to ensure that the donations would get to the intended beneficiaries, which was the, the truckers uh, related to their expenses. Um, uh, GoFundMe had put different freezes on at different points in that first week. Uh, first, they you know, froze any money coming out. Uh, then they froze donations going in and things like that. But And it wasn't until the Friday afternoon of the 4th at approximately 4 p.m., that they didn't, even though we'd been on a conference call with the legal team, the board of directors and the executive suite of GoFundMe, vice presidents, general counsel, and so on uh, the previous day. And they had my cell phone number because that's the number we used for the conference call. And they had my email address because that's how we exchange correspondence. They didn't give us the courtesy of making the announcement to us or giving us advance notice that they were terminating the fundraiser. They did it through an announcement to all donors and a press release. So we found out at the same time as all the truckers on the street. Anyhow, but there was one million that had got moved from the GoFundMe to Tamara Leach's and Chris Barber's TD joint account um, uh, prior to that. On the Saturday, so that would now be the 5th. I'm going by memory. I'm not looking at a calendar. Um, Tamara and Chris went to use some of those funds to pay for expenses. And that's when the, they couldn't access the funds and they found out that the TD bank had put a freeze on. Um, so, you know, and shortly thereafter, everything else got frozen. And then we had the attorney general's criminal code proceeds of crime order, and then followed by the attorney general, of Ontario's second order, which was a civil forfeiture order, freezing everything. And then on top of that, we got served with the Mariva injunction in the class action lawsuit by personal injury lawyer, Paul Champ. So it's correct that, that, that the donations very early on got frozen and were not a tool through which the protest continued. The protest continued firstly, most importantly, based on the raw determination of thousands of Canadians who believed the government had gone too far and uh, were at their wits end 
of the harms that the government mandates were causing and they weren't prepared to put it up with it anymore and they wanted to take a stand and protest lawfully as they're entitled to do peaceful assembly in ottawa um they just the the um the those actions the economic measures under the emergencies act were not necessary to 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 block that funding because it was blocked through other mechanisms already and it wasn't what was sustaining the protest anybody who was there saw how many how many donations of of supplies were constantly funneling in uh way beyond anything that was needed uh just because of the generosity of so many and then the cash donations you know the truckers would get a tap on the window and someone would give them 50 bucks or 20 bucks or a thousand bucks so canadians were not going to let this oppressive authoritarian government uh, stop this protest from carrying on and and but the economic measures did have a huge personal impact and business impact on key people involved in the in the protest because they couldn't get groceries you know for the, their spouses couldn't get groceries they couldn't fill prescriptions they couldn't make car payments and mortgage payments and some businesses were unable to meet payroll for their employees, even though their employees were busy, you know, trucking in other parts of the country. So uh, I think the the economic measures of the bank account freezes had a huge psychological impact more than sort of, you know, and some practical impact for sure. But Dan, you're right. It, the, the significant donations through GoFundMe and Give, Send, Go. Give, Send, Go at the end had raised 1275 million Canadian. So 10 million raised uh, with GoFundMe, 12.75 million uh, with uh, Give Send Go. Through the report. Um, yeah, I just, you know, and a, a lot of the reasoning, um, you know, given in POIC was the, you know, the economic loss. But when you actually read the report, the report says, um, so, you know, the number that gets thrown out was 45 million a day in affected trade. Um, from, you know, the border blockades and things like that. And I mean, this number gets cited time and time again. But when you actually go through the report, it says that this was the, the upper limit that was decided upon. Um, so, you know, we, we don't even know the, the real economic cost of those border blockades. Um, that was the upper limit that was quoted by Finance Canada. And it also goes on to say that that, um, that would be made up half of that amount would be made up in the following weeks um, as, you know, the, the blockades were lifted. So it just, you know, everything that, that the government has cited as reasoning um, for using this act um, has been, you know, kind of based on really shaky ground, in my opinion, when you actually go through, um, you know, the, the actual information and the figures. Andy, Andy it's, it's sorry, it, it's worse than that. You're right. But we were losing our minds when those senior finance officials were testifying because they were talking at length about these models that they developed. They developed these models, right? Well, guess what? And we put into evidence and we used it in cross-examination. The Stats Canada report had come out showing that there was no decrease in cross-border trade because the trucks simply went to different border crossings it's not like there's only one crossing at windsor there's three right so they just you know what do we do if uh, if you're in calgary and you find out there's a bad accident on the deerfoot trail um and the 
the, the it's going to be closed for two hours. You don't go drive into it and sit there. You go around it. That's all. And has this never happened to a trucker before where an interstate's been closed or something? You know, so so they went around it. So the Stats Canada actual measure of trade, the empirical data, no guessing, no estimating, no models. So, you know, here they had these officials testify for half a day about their models and what they thought was the strength of their models and the weakness of their models. And Brendan's like, well, how did your model compare to the actual data? It failed. So the data that we put in was the Stats Canada reports that said trade was up from the previous year and that there was no net reduction in cross-border uh, trade of goods and service or goods, you know, through vehicles, through, through trucks, uh, as a result of the Windsor closure. It was just a, a, a feeble attempt, but the legacy media repeated the number from the high end of the model. There was only one story, and I think it was on maybe CTV. If you go back into my Twitter feed, you'll see it, because I used to retweet that thing like three times a day where where it reported on what Stats Canada had found, which was there was no negative economic impact to the cross-border trade at Windsor as a result of the border closure. A frustrating point for a lot of us too, Keith, when we were watching that particular economic argument was that the government would never commit to doing an economic analysis of the rail and pipeline blockades that have been going on for years. And yet they were making a big thing out of this. Or the, the tourism industry losing its mind, Jerry, as you know well, uh, all the way into last summer over the 14-day the quarantine requirement. What American is going to go to Niagara Falls, unvaccinated American, when they got a quarantine? What, what, what German tourist is going to come to Banff, Alberta, uh, unvaccinated, when they have to quarantine for 14 days? And the various tourist and, and hospitality industries had documented very well the yeah. incredible economic damage that the various uh, travel mandate restrictions and cross-border restrictions that the federal government was continuing to impose when Europe was wide open, wide open. I remember preparing for my cross-examination in May or June of some of the senior officials on the Peckford case. And I myself and some of my team, you know, we went to all of the different European countries to see what their requirements were. And like Norway was like, we welcome all visitors. Enjoy your life again. We don't care what your vaccination status is. We don't require you to have any PCR, any other COVID test. Come and enjoy our country and its beauty. And meanwhile, you know, coming to Canada was like trying to cross into the Iron Curtain or something. It was remarkable. So why is it that when Canadians protesting for their rights and freedoms are alleged to have an impact economically it's a, it's a catastrophe, but it's okay for the government to have caused all this tremendous economic hardship and loss, business closures, unemployment, through their ridiculous, arbitrary, non-scientific mandates. Well, I'm just going to quickly add to simplify that maybe, because Gary, you, you, you hit the nail on the head there, is they didn't have it, but there has been no assessments on risks in the last three, five years, and if you're going to play the blame game, we need to have that data. You can't just pretend that it's there. 
And something, Gary, you mentioned a long time ago, so I do want to mention it, go back to it, and it was a while ago, while I have the mic here, is that the test, there is a serious test that needs to be, um, you know, passed for the EA to be invoked. And we've talked a lot about the policing and stuff like that, but the provinces needed to be consulted in advance. And some of them participated at the EA and I, like everyone else, hasn't read obviously 2,000 pages, but we're talking about a national emergency and the fact that provinces didn't know anything that was going on speaks to one of the other items that gets forgotten quite a bit more uh, on the test, which is still very important about what was going on with provinces and the consultation with other jurisdictions. Yeah, you know, Ava, I was really reading that report, and that was kind of something um, that stuck out to me, too, is that British Columbia wanted it. Um, I believe the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, Labrador, and Nova Scotia were the ones to prove it. The only province that had teeth in the game for that one was BC. Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan were opposed to it. I believe, actually, Northwest Territories was medium about it. They, they didn't commit one way or another. I always found that kind of interesting. And, you know, Keith, touching on your point about the logistics, they made a, a point in the report where the PAI crossing here in BC was um, blocked by 800 protesters, and that accounted for 5% of the gross domestic product in Canada. Well, there's two other border, border crossings within two, 20 kilometers of that crossing. There was no economic damage from that border crossing. I, it was just, it drove me insane reading that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, it, it seems not significant right now, the economic factor, but I bring it up because it, it is important because these figures were quoted, um, you know, by our Ministry of Finance. Um, and the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked, um, Minister Freeland had a meeting with bank CEOs. And so the economic harms that didn't actually occur um, were, you know, voiced by the bank CEOs. And so if you actually read the report, it says Minister Freeland described these as heart-stopping and spurs to action that drove home for her the gravity of the situation and her responsibility to do something about it. So, I mean becomes really, really significant when, you know, they're quoting financial devastation from border blockades that didn't actually occur and that this was a, a driving, um, you know, motivator for, for Krista Freeland to take the action that she did and for the government to enact the Emergencies Act against protesters, right? I mean, it was all just based on, on fabrications, right? Models that um, never manifested, and, and, you know, estimates of upper limits of, of economic harms that, that never actually occurred. So it, it's pretty crazy. Well, the same, the same modeling company does their climate change stuff. <laughs> um, you know, Keith, I kind of want to talk to you about the POEC re uh, report's decision. And at the beginning of the summary, they kind of talk about, um, right at the beginning, they make it clear what constitutes an emergency. And they define it really clearly. It, it's... A threat to security of Canada in, this, in turn is defined by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act, the CSIS Act. I'm having a hard time, re or the clerk kind of goes into this, and he, further on in the report, he kind of talks about this, and he says, the public 
emergency was met contained in the section called the PCO comment. The PCO is a view that the example of evidence collected to date redaction for solicitor client privileges supports a determination that the two criteria required to declare a public emergency order is pursuant to the E have, have been met. Specifically, the PCO of the view that the municipal and provincial authorities have considerable effort was necessary to restore access to the site and will be required to main, maintain access. And he, Rouleau kind of talks about this a little bit at time because he says you need the CSIS CSIS Act to declare an emergency. CSIS has gone on record saying it there is no emergency. And you have the PCO saying that it was in in fact um, justified. And you talk to Rouleau and or you look at Rouleau Rouleau's findings and he kind of makes this obscure reference. He's like, you know, maybe people are gonna say that the CSIS Act wasn't required. I disagree with that. And then he makes his ruling. Do you guys mind unpacking that for me? Sure. Uh <laughs> Well, you know, so put yourselves in our shoes as part of the legal team. And we're getting police officer, police official rather, intelligence officials, um, deputy ministers, <clears throat> deputy solicitor generals, provincial officials, RCMP commissioners and deputy commissioners, all saying the same thing was, you know, in your view were the elements necessary uh, under C the CSIS Act met under Section 2. You know, was there uh, any evidence of espionage? Was there any evidence that the protesters um, uh, were involved, you know, were foreign influence and engaged in sabotage of the Canadian government? Uh, was there evidence of serious, serious violence? That's the legal word, serious violence associated with uh, uh, the protesters was there a plot to overthrow the government? And when each one of those senior informed officials, most importantly, Superintendent Pat Morris of the OPP, their head of intelligence, uh, all said the same thing. It was no, no, no. Uh, David uh, Vignet, the, uh, or Vignel, if I'm not pronouncing his last name right, but the head of CSIS, the same. So, well, what are you going to do? You're the Prime Minister's office. You're the Privy Council office. You're Mendocino. Uh-oh, the inquiry's going on. You've had all these officials testify that the requirements of the CSIS Act to lawfully invoke the Emergencies Act were not met. Well, where are you going to go? And I still remember it was Jody Thomas, <clears throat> a blonde or silver-haired lady, and she got up there and she testified. I did some interview shortly after, and I flagged this, and I saw the pivot, and it was the test. They did this test pivot, and the pivot they did was they said, well, you know, CSIS is looking through the lens of of the of the CSIS Act from a CSIS perspective. We were looking through the lens of the CSIS Act from the Privy Council and the Prime Minister's Office perspective. Well, okay, guys, let's use a simple thing. So you're speeding down the highway. The speed limit's 100 kilometers an hour, and your highway traffic DAC in whatever province you're in says that if you exceed the speed limit by, by 1 to 15 kilometers an hour, you're entitled to a speeding ticket for you know $170 and two demerit points. And the police officer pulls you over, and he says that you know, you, you're doing 112 in a 100 zone. And you said to him, no, 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 no. 
I look at the Highway Traffic Act from a different lens, right? How's that going to go? If, if the answer that uh, Thomas gave uh, uh, from the Privy Council, um, uh, if that was a law school exam in statutory interpretation, and she said that the legal requirements of Section 2 of the CSIS Act mean something different if it's someone who works at CSIS who's looking at those words versus it's someone working at the Privy Council office, you would fail the course of statutory interpretation. It's pure nonsense. And that became the spin that Minister Blair, Minister Mendocino, and others uh, 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 proffered uh, in the coming days. It's bullshit. So this isn't done, though. Like the, There is still a challenge in federal court about the POEC and its findings. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, I see in the chat that somebody's asked where to from here. And um, uh, let me just <clears throat> break that into two pieces. And I apologize for my voice, guys. I'm running on very little sleep as usual ever since I signed up for this freedom stuff and uh, been doing interviews all day and meeting with the board. But um, it's this. First of all, you cannot appeal this decision of the of 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 the uh, Mr. Rouleau. Um, you cannot do a judicial review on it. It is what it is. It's a report that he lays to Parliament after having held his hearings and his inquiry. So it's the end of the road for that, so to speak. However, <clears throat> a, a number of groups, the CCLA, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and others, initiated a judicial review, a judicial review in federal court, um, immediately after the Emergencies Act was invoked on February 14th, and in fact, initiated it before it was even revoked, okay? So what does that mean? If you believe a government has engaged in an action or a decision that you think was wrong, particularly if you think they did not have the jurisdiction to do it, meaning <clears throat> whatever legal requirements were necessary to be met before they exercised that power, you do what's called a judicial review. It's not a damages lawsuit. It's a judicial review. It's a form of expedited process before the courts where you go before the court and you say, hey, I don't think the cabinet had the requisite factual circumstances in order to invoke the Emergencies Act. So that is currently before the federal court. All of the three judicial reviews have been merged into a consolidated action. Um, some of the parties have had success, or some of the council have had success in getting some of the documents from the POEC hearings introduced as evidence for the court, for the federal court judicial review. And <clears throat> Justice Mosley of the federal court I believe it's in May, there'll be an oral hearing and shortly thereafter, he will make a ruling as to whether or not the factual circumstances were present, evidence of sabotage, insurrection, serious violence against persons or property, et cetera, set out in section two of the CSIS Act. And if he says, no, there wasn't the factual basis, that means the federal government exceeded its legal authority and invoke the Emergencies Act um, in, in an unlawful manner, 
what will flow from that, interestingly, is the immunity that the government and the banks acquired through the invocation will be lost. And the lawsuits against the banks and the federal government will begin. So this is not the end of the road with respect to the judicial review or the review of their conduct. Similarly, as Jerry Ritz can uh, provide you some guidance and wisdom on, um, I think the Emergencies Act needs to be amended. Now, Mr. Rouleau has suggested that it needs to be amended to make it even easier for the federal government to invoke it and strip you and your children of fundamental charter rights and due process rights. I think it needs to be amended the other way to make it even harder for the government to play these shenanigans and trample Canadians' rights like they did. Her with Keith, this has to be made more difficult to implement, not less difficult to implement. I mean, people have just thrown up their hands. My biggest concern, Keith, is we've got an election pending. It's a minority government. It's going to happen here sooner rather than later. People are just upset. They're throwing up their hands and saying they're all crooks. They're all the same. It's not going to make a difference. How do we get rid of these guys with that kind of an attitude? We have to st stay our, keep our eyes on the prize here and realize that in order to make these changes that need to be there to strengthen the act, not weaken it, we have to change the government. Agree 100%. And, and, but, and what I've been saying and what uh, Tamara Leach and the, uh, many of the original Freedom Convoy board, board, of which there's several, held a press conference this morning. And what Tamara said and others at that press conference is that Canadians need to speak loudly and clearly to all of their elected officials and those people who are seeking to become their elected officials and make clear their deep concern about what happened on Friday and over the last number of years, their view that, that this level of arbitrary power in the hands of government to behave in an authoritarian manner in violation of our rights and freedoms is not acceptable and it's not reflective of the Canada that they were raised in and the Canada that they want to raise their children in. As Jerry knows and can pr hopefully provide us all some guidance on, my experience is if enough Canadians or any, if enough voters articulate a strong view on any issue, you will watch all the political parties start to shift and say, hey, yeah, I'm the champion of that cause. As I was sitting with Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and uh, Miranda Gracer and, and Ryan Mihilowicz, some of the original road captains and people who were on the ground during the protests, and we were sitting in a hotel room here in, in Calgary, rather, in Calgary this past Friday and watching the Prime Minister's words at his press conference, I said to Tamara, I said, do you know the last person I heard use those phrases about respect for the rule of law, respect for the diversity of opinion of Canadians, um, uh, dialogue, uh, peacefulness, uh, unity. I said, you, Tamara, this joker is emulating your words because he knows that, that they're reflective of true Canadian values. So... That would be uh, my, my motivational comment, and I'd really be interested in Jerry's advice, as his experience as an elected uh, politician that achieved rank of cabinet minister, 
uh, if he has advice at a practical level for what each one of us Canadians can do to get these political parties to start being Canadian again. Well, Trudeau has proven himself a master chameleon of politics. He, he's always out there. And the, and the point, I guess, what makes it easy is he's got a, a paid-for media in his hip pocket so it'll only cover what's good, not what's bad. Uh, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a disheartened Democrat today. I mean, we're a democratic country, and I'm seeing that all getting washed aside and left behind in this rush to, I have no idea what. Uh, we're, we're, we're tearing down the greatest country in the world. I had the great opportunity to represent it out there on the world stage, and we were revered. We were looked up to. And that is not happening anymore. I still got a lot of international contacts that are telling me, you guys are at the bottom of the, of the sock drawer. You don't even match anymore. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. And I, I, you know, the only way we can change this is to change the freaking government. But people that I talk to are so frustrated and so upset with what's going on, they just keep saying, I'm just going to walk away. Well, <laughs> you can't. You've got to get involved. You've got to do exactly what Keith and Eva have done and Andy, who's, who's faced the wrath of and had her bank account frozen and so on. You, you've got to put your, your future on the line and actually stand up and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm just going to stand up here and I'm going to you know, drive my stake in the ground. I'm not moving. We've got to change this, folks, one day at a time, one issue at a time. We cannot let this lying son of a bitch that's, that's our prime minister at this time. Sorry, Dan, and we have to leave that out. But we can't allow him to win. This guy becomes whatever he needs to become in order to make some cheap points for the media that he's paid for. We cannot allow that to stand. Um, well, and, and I want to add to that in that, um, gosh, I had two points here, but one I, is going to tie into what Keith was saying and, and our kind of message on moving forward is we need to get involved with, um, you know, campaigning and and talking to our elected officials and one thing that we learned at the inquiry when we got the disclosure although although i have to say when um mr rouleau said an unprecedented unprecedented amount of documents and disclosure from the federal government i've never in my life seen anything so disorganized and um redacted in my life and I'll just let everyone know on this space because we haven't talked about it a lot but when we were all all the parties were asked to put all their um, documents together and upload it to the system reasonably we you know if let's say Keith had all his text messages with a certain person we put them all on one pdf so you could follow the conversation and it was reasonable to understand for anybody trying to understand what that conversation was about and, and get a, a context. What the federal government did is they would take a screenshot of the text messages and that would be one page. They wouldn't tie it together with the next page and you would have to click on this disclosure um, complicated system to look at the next screen and it didn't necessarily have to follow the conversation. It could have then been a different document from a different department. It didn't have to be a text message at all. So trying to follow in any reasonable shape what the disclosure was from the federal government, although they did certainly do a data dump on us, 
it wasn't done in order to be comprehensive or cohesive or reasonable for anybody to understand. So that I, I uh, you know, kind of am offended by because if anybody were to look at it, any reasonable person, they would recognize that that wasn't a reasonable disclosure. It was just a data dump. But one thing we did see in text messages, even between high officials and government and ministers, is they are looking at what is going on on Twitter and what people are saying about them on Twitter. They are so concerned about their image on Twitter. So if you're sending a letter to them or an email, maybe throw up some of those lines on Twitter as well so that other people are encouraged and see that they're not the only ones doing the work. Right, and this goes to the second point I wanted to say is, as you mentioned, um, Andy has taken a brunt. I, I know both Keith a while ago and, and me a little bit newer to the spotlight. You know, we, we are kind of putting ourselves out there for the freedom of Canada with a huge target on our backs. Um, there's a lot of people that are anonymous on these devices. And they are saying a lot of very, very nasty things. And I said this um, earlier is I thank Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh for that, because if they're saying it, why can't other citizens say it? So we're hearing this divisiveness, this rhetoric, this hate. But I encourage everyone listening on this call Keep voicing your concerns. Keep supporting those. Um, you know, we're strength in numbers. I think anybody that's put themselves out there appreciates the support and welcomes it and is encouraged by it. So those would be things that I would ask and encourage people to do moving forward. Yeah, thank you, Ava. Um, you know, Jerry, I just want to ask you a quick question because you were an MP and you were in the trenches. How do the people here involved... Um, voice their, what's their best way to voice their concerns to their MP? Like, how do we get our MPs to listen to us? Do we just email them? Do we phone them? Like, when you were an MP, what was the best way for a citizen, a voter, to get a hold of you? And what was the best way to change your mind on a specific policy? Well, any one of the town halls that I attended, we did dozens of them every year, uh, but a short succinct message as Keith says if you want to get my attention have it in less than a page a couple paragraphs max and I'll, I'll get to see it if it's longer than that it goes to a staff member to try and distill it down and give me a point or two but short succinct direct messaging and don't stop with one send one a month you know just keep hammering away Jerry it's Keith here if I could add one of the things that was taught to me by a couple former MPs that I got to know over the years is they always told me that the, one of the most powerful things you could do in a letter to a politician is who you cc'd it to. A member of parliament once told me that that's how he decided which letters he read first. If the letter was just to him, he'd put it at the bottom of the pile. If the letter was cc'd to a couple of other MPs or cc'd uh, to the party leader or cc'd to an opposition leader, he would read it because he said to me, if he was going into the cafeteria at the parliament building, uh, he wanted to make sure he was aware of that in case the other MP or the cabinet minister, opposition leader, whatever, came up to him and said, hey, did you see that letter from that rancher at Stetler? 
for example. Is that a, is that a good strategy to make sure you're CCing these letters to other uh, members of parliament and, and other uh, ranking officials? Oh, absolutely. Cast your net wide. I mean, uh, send it to three and make sure each one of them knows you've sent it to the other two and get them talking amongst themselves. Now, when you follow up on the letter, say, hey, I got a response from so-and-so, but not from you. What's going on? So, yeah, yeah, cast your net wide. And one of the things we've all found, because we're obviously all on Twitter, else we wouldn't be hearing one another's voices right now, is, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, you send your letter and then take a picture of it with your phone, you know, if it's a page or a page and a half and try and keep it a page um, and then tweet it out and have it in the image because it will give ideas to other people. And so they can see how easy it is actually to do that. And Eva's right. That was one of my, you know, shocking things at the public inquiry going through the thousands of pages of, of handwritten notes from cabinet ministers and political advisors and police and other officials was the extent to which they don't just watch Twitter. I mean, like they're obsessed by it. So let's take advantage of that, man. Yeah, we're, we're good till the, uh, what is it? Till C11 till they slap that sucker on us, but, uh, let's make use of it while we can. We're, we are in Calgary and, uh, we're going to see one of the documentaries on the Freedom Convoy. It's been quite a weekend here, um, so we have to get moving. But I think this has been so wonderful, and it looks like we have lots of engagement, and I think we should probably do this again. Maybe once somebody's gotten through the next chapter of that 2,000-page document, I think there's a lot to unpack, and I'd certainly be happy to get on this again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for uh, coming. Andy Lee, thank you so much. Keith, thank you so much. Um, Jerry, it's always a pleasure. Um, I know I was going to take questions, but uh, Keith and Ava have to go. So if, do you guys have anything else to add before we uh, end this? I would just say it's Keith here. You know, uh, Eva and I got into this because – we, you know, we made some, many, many days, I can tell you guys, we're like, why the heck did we sign up for this? Maybe the other 130,000 lawyers in Canada are the smart ones, and her and I and a handful of others are unbright. But, you know, we got into this because we're deeply concerned about the direction of our country. And I know that there are millions, every single person we met in Ottawa was there for the same reason. We've slipped into this authoritarianism. We're taking away the future uh, of freedoms for our children, or the government is, and, and, and all the economic harm they're causing as well. It doesn't have to be that way. I do remain optimistic. The truckers and their courage gave us hope. Um, if we start adding our voice, I think the government overplayed its hand. That's one thing they consistently did when we were in Ottawa on the ground with the truckers and, and the protesters. So they always remember when they no more fuel, no more fuel for the truckers. What happened the next day? It was I am Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. Everybody showed up with jerry cans. Right. And. That is, we were assessing if they were going to invoke the Emergencies Act. And we kept thinking, well, if they do, they're going to overplay their hand. And they did. And now I was thinking, and some of you have asked me, what did I think Rouleau would rule? I said right up till Thursday, before we saw the report, that I thought his report would say 
that he was asked to inquire into the circumstances of the invocation of the Emergencies Act and the protesters and others who feel that it was not properly invoked felt that it wasn't properly invoked for the following reasons and he'd list them. And then he would say that the Privy Council Office and the Cabinet and the PMO felt it was properly invoked and they felt it was invoked for these reasons. The end. That's how he would end it because he would have completed his mandate. And then it would have been left to each of us to we'd be pointing to the things in the report that support our view of the world and the PMO and the Privy Council and the, the Liberals would be pointing to the things in the report that support, support theirs and the debate would fade away. Well, what did they do? He comes out and says it's justified. Like, seriously? The only other times we've used this in World War One, World War Two, and the FLQ crisis where there was bombings, kidnappings uh, of, of diplomats and murders. And we have this protest in Ottawa because the borders were all reopened as of the Sunday, February 13th. Uh, Tamara Leach and the board had reached an agreement with the mayor and, and have started implementing it on the Monday morning and moved over 100 vehicles, 23 up into Wellington and the rest out to the base camps that had been established on the periphery of the city. Um, so they didn't need to invoke. It's clear they didn't meet the legal test. Rouleau overplays his hand to protect the prime minister, so he thinks. And now he's poked another bear. I think Canadians are not happy about this. And I think hopefully it will mobilize many hundreds of thousands of us to send a strong, clear message to those who want to hold power that this is not acceptable. And if they want our vote, they need to come out clear and strong on it. Really, really well said, Keith. Uh, you know, the biggest thing I took from the truckers convoy is you are not alone. There are millions of Canadians thinking exactly what you are. Don't throw up your hands. Get out of your comfort zone. Get involved. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Ava, Keith, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Andy, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your work. And Jerry, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Opposition with Dan Knight. We hope you enjoyed our discussion with former Minister of Agriculture Jerry Ritz, Convoy lawyers Keith Wilson and Ava Chipiak, and investigative reporter Andy Lee on the aftermath of the Freedom Convoy protest and the implication of the POEC report. We hope this conversation has provided you with valuable insights and perspective in, on Canadian democracy. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more insightful conversations on Canadian politics in the future.